who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let's open the word of God this morning to John chapter 6, as we continue our study of the Bread of Life discourse in this fantastic passage in the Gospel of John. Before we begin, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord and ready to take in His Word. We need to do this through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, and confession simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood. Every believer is a royal priest to God. That means we have the privilege of immediate access to God And our sins are between the Lord and us alone. They are no one else's business. So in the privacy of our souls, we can go to the Father and admit or acknowledge our sins. And God cleanses us from all wrongdoing. Atikos there in the Greek is all wrongdoing. Whatever we may forget, whatever we might not know is a sin. The grace of God provides a perfect solution so that it is no longer an issue. And we are restored to fellowship and we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So let's bow our heads for a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, you have given us everything we need for life and spiritual life through your word. It is through your word that we advance, that we grow spiritually. It is your word that nourishes our soul. It is the doctrines that you have communicated to us that are the foundation for the spiritual life, that teach us how to think, how to understand reality. And it is your word that teaches us all about yourself, your infinite power and ability. And from eternity eternity past, you knew every situation we would face, every problem we would encounter, every heartache, every difficulty, and you provided a perfect solution for every situation we would face in your word. So now, Father, as we feed upon your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have been studying in John chapter 6, we have seen two miracles so far. Miracle number one was, is called the feeding of the 5,000. We saw in our study here that the 5,000 referred to 5,000 adult men. And so it also included uh, an unnumbered number of children and women. The crowd probably was numbered around 12 to 15,000. We don't know exactly. That's not really an issue. But we do know that this was an incredible miracle where our our Lord took the five loaves and the two fishes or was it the other way around? So, yeah, five loaves and two fish. Remember, I told the first hour, for those of you who are just in, I went down for Mother's Day to spend a couple of days in Houston, and I got in at 2 o'clock this morning. 
So uh, I normally get up pretty early on Sunday morning, so I'm a little fuzzy. We're thankful for caffeine. It does help at times like this. Five loaves and two fish, and the fish were very small fish. These are like sardines and uh, or an anchovy. I prefer anchovies. I like anchovies. Just a little spread on the bread. And the Lord multiplied those so that everybody had more than enough. They ate till they were completely filled. And then there were 12 baskets left over for the apostles, one for each of them, so that God, or Jesus Christ, was demonstrating that he was absolutely sufficient for every situation, every problem. And the physical feeding through the bread was to demonstrate the spiritual truth of the importance and the priority of feeding upon God's Word because He is the one who nourishes us and provides for us. Well, that was the first miracle. And afterward, that took place, as we'll see in our passage today, on the Sea of Galilee. Here's the map of Israel, the Dead Sea down here in the south. This is Judea in this area. The Jordan River flows from north to south, flows out of this body of water here in the north, which is the Sea of Galilee. They tried to curry favor with the uh, Roman emperor there for a while and called it the Sea of Tiberias. And here's a blow-up of the Sea of Galilee. The place where the feeding of the 5,000 took place is over here north of Tiberias on the coast, up here in the hills. And so when the disciples left in their boat, they were headed to Capernaum, headed across the water this way, and they got out right about here, about halfway out into the Uh, Sea of Galilee, and it was nighttime. They had delayed waiting for the Lord to show up, and He didn't show up. And so finally, as as dusk approached, they figured they better uh, get a move on or they wouldn't get there by nightfall. Remember, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have navigational aids. So they were doing sort of dead reckoning navigation. They had to get across, and a tremendous storm blew up in the middle of the night, and they made very little progress. And in nine hours, they made three miles which is not very fast at all. If you're doing it by hand and you're rowing against the wind and against the waves, then you are exhausted. And at that point, out of the darkness, they saw the Lord coming to them, walking on the water. Now, this was a private session. We studied this last time, that Jesus was indeed doing this to demonstrate that He was the Messiah. Remember, the theme, the basic theme of the Gospel is that is given in John 20, 30, and 31. In John, there he talks about uh, Thomas having seen the Lord physically, and then he talks about the many signs which the Lord performed, and then John the Apostle says, but these are written, that is, these signs, these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. So he is telling us the signs He is building a case. He's like a lawyer establishing a legal case in a courtroom. He's marshalling witnesses. We've studied the witnesses in the gospel. And he is marshalling the evidence of the signs which point to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Now, he just performed the one sign, feeding the 5,000. And after that, he sends the crowd away. Now, you would think, operating on a human viewpoint system, that the goal is to have people there, not to send them away. But Jesus sent them away because he perceived, number one, that they weren't positive to the message. They were negative. Most of them were unbelievers, and they had a different agenda. They had a political agenda, and we saw that in verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign 
which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet. That's a phrase from Deuteronomy chapter 18, 13, where Moses said there would be a greater prophet who came. It was a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is of a truth, the prophet who's come into the world. And Jesus, therefore, in verse 15, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They have an agenda. They have a political agenda. They have a problem. They are enslaved to Rome, and they don't understand what that means and the spiritual lessons and why they are enslaved to Rome. And so because they have rejected the word of God at the beginning and God's analysis and God's interpretation of the political events, they cannot understand what's going on, so they're going to get look for a false solution, a political solution to what is ultimately a spiritual problem. So Jesus is going to go out on the water and talk to the, uh, give a little private lesson to the disciples because they are, they too are looking for a kingdom. And he has already told them that they are going to rule and reign with him in the kingdom. But now when he sends the crowd away and it seems like the movement is diminishing, there are questions among the disciples. You can just imagine that if you were Matthew and you'd given up your uh, career as a bureaucrat in the IRS for the Roman Empire in order to follow Jesus and now he sends everybody away, you might be questioning whether or not you'd made a wise decision. You were James or John and you'd given up your fishing business in order to follow this itinerant preacher through Judea and Galilee and now he sends the crowds away and you're expecting him to provide a, to bring in the kingdom and he sends everybody away and he rejects the crowd. You might be wondering what your role was going to be. So Jesus came to the disciples at night to teach them some more things about faith and to satisfy their questioning that he was indeed the God. We looked at Psalm 29 last week, which shows God is the God who rides over the waters and is in control of the forces of nature. And so he is identifying himself by walking on the water with the God of the Old Testament, identifying himself with Yahweh. And we saw the very tantalizing statement in Mark that is not included in any of the other passages uh, that describe this, which says that after this, after Jesus got in the boat with them and they came to the shore, that the disciples hardened their hearts. Now, that's a very interesting statement. And what that means, remember in the Scripture the word heart, the word cardia, does not refer to the emotional center. I, I get tired sometimes of hearing people talk about the heart. Oh, it just, it's true because it speaks to my heart. It just, just makes my heart feel good. And I just want to ask you, what do you mean by heart? You have a heart problem? You go to a cardiologist? And usually most people in their fuzzy-headed thinking define heart somehow as emotion in our culture. It's not what the Bible means by the heart. The heart was the core of a person's soul. And it was the thinking part of the soul. It was where thought took place. And it is not emotional. So this is a, a phrase in the Scriptures that when they hardened their heart, that is, they were going on negative volition, they didn't understand any more than the multitudes did that Christ's mission was first spiritual, secondly political. They forgot that the cross had to come before the crown, that the spiritual solution had to precede the political solution. And so even the disciples were confused and did not understand the issue and were going on uh, negative decisions. Now, 
the crowd is completely divorced from reality. We have to understand what is going on here from a biblical perspective. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, especially as it is uh, re-articulated in Deuteronomy, God ends the Mosaic Law. You have the covenant. starts with the ten words, literally in the Hebrew, what we call the Ten Commandments, and that functions like a prelude to our preamble to the Constitution. It's merely an introduction summarizing the fundamental principles of freedom which underlie the entire Mosaic Law Code. So the Ten Commandments are the Freedom Code. And then you have another 603 mandates and commandments given to the nation. So when people think about, well, I can get to heaven just by following the Ten Commandments. Okay, you did okay on the first ten. What about the other 603? There are 613 mandates given in the Mosaic Law, and then it ends with a blessing and a cursing section. Now, God in the Old Testament, in working with human history in its infancy, realizes that just like your children are pretty... pretty uh, uh, concrete thinkers and are not abstract thinkers. He's treating the human race in the same way. And he said, okay, I'm going to make it real easy for you. If you are on positive volition and you are growing spiritually, then I am going to bless you uh, physically and materially and nationally in the land. So that every year you are to gather together and you are going to take 10%. This is one of the tithes. Tithing is an Old Testament system of taxation. It is not part of the church age. Tithing, the word tithe, literally means 10%. It's an old King James word, an old English word, and it means 10%. And you see, in the, in the Old Testament economy, I'm going to divert a little bit because I haven't taught about giving, so it's about time I cover that a little bit. You have mandatory giving and you have free will giving. Now, the mandatory giving, there were three tithes. Uh, two were taken every year, and one was taken every third year. And the third year one was designed to take care, support the bureaucracy, the Levites, the widows and orphans for the welfare system, and different things like that. And that was the purpose of the, all the tithes. They supported, remember, it's a theocracy, so the bureaucracy of a theocracy are your priests and those who run the temple. And that's what the tithes took care of. And the passage in Malachi where it says, bring the tithes to the storehouse, you'll always hear somebody who's absolutely ignorant of Hebrew, absolutely ignorant of the Old Testament, say, well, that's bringing your, your gifts to the church. No, the storehouse was like the national treasury, and this basically functioned as an, the IRS. And you would bring in your, this was mandatory, and it was functioned to support the government. This is your basic taxation system for supporting the government. And on top of that, there were free will, free will gifts. Now, in the New Testament, because we no longer have a theocracy and you live in national entities, the mandatory system is replaced by whatever taxes you have in your national entity. Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's. And that is the mandate for free will giving. And it's up to you as a man determineth in his own mentality uh, God hates a giver who gives grudgingly and out of necessity, and he favors the um, cheerful giver. So that's the purpose for the free will offering. Anyway, 
God said what's going to happen is that you're going to take account of how much you've made during the last year. So we're going to look at the gross national product, and we're going to take 10%, and we're going to have a party. And every year we're going to have a party. We're going to take 10% of the gross national product, and we're going to have a celebration. We're going to eat, and we're going to drink, and we're going to just have a tremendous celebration of how you have been blessed during the last year. Well, think about it. If the gross national product one year is is $250 billion, and the next year it's $2 billion, and the party's a lot less extravagant than it was the year before, and instead of eating uh, beluga caviar, you're just eating uh, smoked oysters that are picked up down at the local uh, stop-and-go, then um, something's wrong. You're going to wake up and you're going to say, wait a minute, something has changed in the last year, what is it? And God says that if, uh, if you're following my mandates, then I'm going to bless you materially, But if you are disobedient, I am going to curse you financially and and politically. And in Leviticus, God outlines five different cycles of discipline for the nation Israel. These are tied to the Mosaic Covenant. There may be some application to other nations, but remember, Israel is a unique nation in history. They are the only nation God makes a specific covenant with. So they are a covenant nation and other nations in the church age that God uses for various purposes, like the United States today, England in the early 19th century and in the 18th century, were client nations, but they do not have a covenant with God. And while these principles may apply in, some, in various ways, they are not exact. The first cycle of discipline involved loss of health, a decline of agricultural prosperity, national terror, fear, and death in combat, loss of personal freedoms, Due to negative volition to doctrine, this is in Leviticus 26, 14, and 17. The second cycle involved economic recession and depression, an increased personal and individual divine discipline for continued negative volition in spite of the first warning from the first cycle of discipline. So it gets progressively worse. That's in Leviticus 26, 18 to 20. The third cycle of discipline includes violence, a breakdown of law and order, and disintegration of order in the cities. This is in Leviticus 26, 21 through 22. Then the fourth cycle of discipline involved military conquest and or foreign occupation, a scarcity of food, and the separation of families. This is Leviticus 26, 23 to 26. And then the fifth cycle of discipline was the destruction of the nation, they were to, the Jews were to be taken from the land that God had promised to give them and scattered among the other nations, and this is due to their rejection of biblical principles and rejection of God. Now, at this stage in Israel's history, they're in the fourth cycle of discipline. They're under the boot of the Roman Empire. They have been dominated by Rome, and they are chafing at the restraints and their enslavement to the Roman Empire. But the purpose of all of this, God says, is to wake them up to the spiritual realities. If you find yourself under the domination of a foreign power, the problem is not that you failed politically, God is saying. The problem is that you have failed spiritually. And the solution is not a political solution. The the solution is a spiritual solution. You have to get right with me and you have to start growing spiritually and advancing to spiritual maturity. But the crowds have rejected that. They look at what happens. They look at the fact that they're under the control of the Roman Empire. And instead of saying, oh, I remember what the Old Testament says. This means that we're out of line spiritually and we need to turn back to God and obey the law. They're saying, no, what we need to do is have our own solution. We need to find a political leader, 
someone powerful enough and with the right charisma to unite the people and lead us in a, in a revolt against Rome, and then we'll have freedom. So they are wanting the, the crown before the cross, just as the disciples are. They have forgotten that true freedom is based fundamentally on spiritual realities and not on temporal and physical realities. And it is Bible doctrine. It is regeneration first, becoming a believer. Secondly, spiritual growth and the inculcation of Bible doctrine that provides a culture with the norms and standards, the values necessary in order to have a responsibility and a sense of responsibility upon which true freedom is built. Once you get away from the Lord, you get away from virtue, you get away from the absolute values of Scripture, and you begin to focus on relativism and you lose sight of the Lord, then you are going to begin to deteriorate from the inside out. And that happens in any culture at any time, and we are seeing that today in our particular culture. We are on the verge somewhere between the third and the fourth cycle of discipline. And with what has taken place in the military in the last five or six years, we are ripe for military defeat and military conquest. And I don't know that we would ever have foreign occupation, but because of, also because of decisions made with regard to the economy, we are floating on a hope and a dream right now. And we could very easily, especially in this Y2, year of the Y2K threat, If people panic and they start taking their money out of the banks and start making a run on the banks, and if people further panic and decide they're going to uh, take out their gains in the stock market and start uh, uh, pulling their money out in their retirement plans and their Keogh plans and everything else, we could see the stock market drop to two or 3,000. That is in the case of the panic. And in that case, we would have an incredible national disaster. And I am not a... uh, prognosticator of Y2K doom at all. Uh, I don't think that, that the, the facts substantiate necessarily that the society is going to fall apart when we change the calendar year. Incidentally, this is next year is not the first year in the millennium. It is the last year of the 20th century. There was no year zero. The first year was one, and the last year in the decade was ten. So, uh, the millennium does not end in spite of the fact that the news media and their usual uh, promotion of national ignorance uh, has confused everybody over this issue. But I don't think, I'm not a gloom and doomer. I'm not thinking that, uh, I do not think that Armageddon is coming or the rapture will occur, any of those things. It might, but not because of Y2K. But I do think that the possibility of fear and panic uh, among the populace is, is very real. That concerns me more than anything else. And if that happens, we could be in serious danger, and it could be divine discipline on this nation, and we are ripe for it because of our, our negative volition. But this was the situation in Israel, and they were not attuned to the spiritual barometer that God had established, and so they were not correctly interpreting the historical data in front of them. And because they did not, they were divorced from reality because they had rejected God's word as the interpretive framework for understanding life. They were making bad decisions and they wanted to make Jesus the king. Well, that sets us up for our context. And we began down, I think last time we got down to the end of verse 21. So this time we start the discourse. This is called the bread of life discourse beginning in verse 22. Once again, this is a very profound series of question and answer 
dialogue between Jesus and the crowd and those who are hostile to him. And then it concludes with a private question and answer session with the disciples beginning in verse 66 after the crowd has departed him, including both the believers and unbelievers in the crowd. What Jesus taught in terms of the doctrine he communicates here was too much. Doctrine always drives people off. Most people don't want to think. They just want to emote. They want the uh, stimulation. They want excitement. They want to feel good. They don't want content. They're more impressed, as we're going to see, they're more impressed with the power of Jesus than the person of Jesus. They're more uh, interested in the stimulation rather than the Scriptures. They want the messenger, but they don't want his message. They're focused on the personality and his power rather than his person and his doctrine. And that's the issue, and you see it today. This is very real. The whole situation here sounds like it comes right off the front pages of today's newspaper. The crowds want a political solution. This is true about most evangelical Christians. They're out here trying to get a political solution to the problems that they see, rather, and they are being used by political conservatives in many ways, rather than staying apart from the process. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be involved. I think any believer who is not uh, actively making himself aware of what's going on in his country, being aware of the decisions that are being made, being aware of the legislative process and what, his, what your, your legislators are doing, has divorced himself from reality. We are to be involved. That's the nature of the American system. Every one of you that I know of, is a citizen of this country. And that includes certain responsibilities and certain privileges. And part of that means that you are to be involved in the process. You are to be knowledgeable. You are to make yourself aware of the issue so that you can vote intelligently for your leaders. And we are to be involved in the process to that extent, but we are not to let the political process distract us and get us caught up in trying to promote a political solution to what is fundamentally a spiritual problem. That's the problem that the crowd had. They did not realize, because they were on negative volition to God, they had rejected the divine solution, and they were looking for a human solution to their problem. And so, rather than identifying the problem as spiritual, they thought it was purely physical and temporal. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 22. The next day, now this is the next day after, the day before they had the feeding of the 5,000, then Jesus departed the coast. And when, when the sun went down, they saw the disciples leave. They saw the disciples head out north to Capernaum, and they saw that Jesus went into the mountains here, and this takes a couple of days to walk around the coast. And when they woke up the next morning, Jesus was gone, and then some... uh, Water taxis from Capernaum made their way over there to take them back and brought word that Jesus is up in Capernaum and they just can't figure out how he got there so quickly, but they know that he seems to have a power that no one else has, so maybe he has the power to defeat the Roman legions, so we need to go see if we can get him on our program now instead of his program. That really didn't make much sense to them. So the next day, after the feeding of the 5,000, After the night of his walking on the water, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. 
So they recognize the situation, and they're going to see if we can get this guy on their team to defeat Rome. Verse 23, There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So these small boats come over, pick them up, and take them back to Capernaum. Verse 24, When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, the point here is that the masses want to use Jesus to give them their agenda. But remember, we don't use God. How many people try to manipulate God through prayer? Remember, you cannot pray, God saves so-and-so. Christians do that all the time. But God is not going to violate somebody's volition. God is not going to go in there and tweak something to make anyone believe. You can pray, Lord, make sure that the gospel is presented clearly to them and accurately to them. Put enough pressure on their life so that they are more inclined to respond positively. But you cannot pray, Lord, make them believe. Because God is not going to do that. He will not honor that prayer because it is a wrong prayer. God is not going to force somebody into salvation against their will. He is going to do it through their will, through their faith, but not against their faith. So we can't use God to achieve our agenda. Don't pray that God would change somebody's mind. People are always praying, God, make so-and-so do this. And trying to get God to manipulate people for their benefit. God is never going to succumb to our agenda. We don't use Him. He uses us. have to remember, we are the servants. He is the Lord. Now, when the masses came to the other side, they found the Lord, and they said to Him, Rabbi, That indicates right away that they haven't quite caught the picture that he is the Lord. They don't say curios. They say rabbi. They recognize him as a great teacher. They realize that he has a tremendous amount of knowledge about the Old Testament and various other things, and he has some power, but they do not recognize him to be Lord. But they want to find out what's going on. They say, Rabbi, when did you get here? They are curious about the power that got him transported across the Sea of Galilee so quickly. They want to see if they can use this. Now, Jesus, being omniscient, knows their agenda. And he knows that they are trying to use him, and he wants to expose what's going on. He wants to make sure that the issue is clear, that the crowd is works-oriented, they are legalistic, they have no understanding at all of the spiritual issues involved, They are not trusting God, even those among them that might be believers were not trusting God. They had no grace orientation. They had no faith or trust in God. They had no doctrinal understanding, and they had no capacity for freedom. And remember, the most basic operational spiritual skill is the faith rest drill. Faith means actively trusting the promises of God, mixing your faith with the promises of God. It involves two things. Number one, your positive volition and desire to trust God. But it is not faith in faith. It is not trust in faith itself. It is a faith in God's promises, which means you and I need to know promises. We need to be aware of what these promises are, and we need to commit some of those promises to memory so that we can use them when we get in the test, when we get in the crisis. 
And that means that we have to go through the Scriptures. There's over 2,000 promises in Scripture. And you have to make sure, exercise a little discernment, which comes only from doctrine, and make sure that you're using a promise that God gave to you as a church-age believer and not a promise that he gave to David in the Old Testament. A lot of people make that mistake. Promises that God gave specifically to Israel, and they try to claim those for our nation today. And that's just they're just going to never get an answer to that prayer and wonder what, what, why God doesn't answer prayer. Always make sure that the promise is a promise to church, that church-age believers can utilize today. But we mix our faith with the promises of God, and that's fundamental to every other spiritual skill that God has given us. Grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, a personal sense of our eternal destiny, all are predicated upon a faith rest drill. We have to know what God has said, and we have to then believe it and trust it and implement it in our lives. So Jesus is going to expose that with his answer in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly. Now this is an idiom. In the Greek it is amen, amen. It comes over from an Aramaic and a Hebrew idiom. And it really, although literally it means truly, truly, or verily, verily, which has lost any sense from the old King James, it means pay attention. I'm going to give you a point of doctrine. It emphasizes what is going to follow. Pay attention and listen closely to what I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, not because you saw signs means that if they saw the signs and understood them, seeing them with understanding, which means they would understand that the signs signified who he was. Jesus did not come to heal people and to relieve suffering. That was not the purpose of the first advent. When he healed, he did it to show he had the power over sickness and disease as the Messiah in fulfillment of prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah that the Messiah would come and the lame would walk and the blind would see. So his miracles were designed to be calling cards of his messianic role. He was not coming to alleviate suffering. If that was his purpose, then he he failed because there were many hundreds of Thousands of people who were not healed during the first advent. Many were, but there were many hundreds of thousands that weren't. And he was coming simply to demonstrate his power, who he was. Now, if they saw the signs with understanding, they would have realized he was the Messiah. They would have had some spiritual discernment, and they would have responded and accepted him as such. But they rejected that. They were simply glad because they were stimulated by his presence. They had a good meal. They were filled to capacity. Now notice he is talking to this crowd. This is important because of what's coming up. He is talking to the same crowd that he fed the day before. These are the same folks that ate the bread and anchovies the day before. Now, he says, you're just happy because I stimulated you. You want signs and wonders. You want miracles. You want entertainment. You want emotional stimulation. You're more interested in the messenger than the message. You're more interested in the power than the person. You're more interested in the stimulation than the scriptures. And this is true in most churches. People are there for all kinds of reasons. They're going through hard times in their life and they want somebody to give them some sympathy. They're there because they want to have a little approbation from other people. They're there because they want to get some power over some people. So they're going to try to be a deacon or a Sunday school teacher and communicate their fallacious ideas because they have a lack of humility and arrogance. They want all kinds of things, but they're not there because they want to submit to the teaching of God's Word and let their thinking be transformed 
from the inside out so that they can grow to spiritual maturity and glorify God with all of their thinking first and their life second. Remember, the spiritual life begins with thought and ends in action, not the other way around. And most churches are so uh, uh, desirous of getting people in action that as soon as you walk in the door, they want to put you to work. And I, I was told that when I first entered the pastorate, that if you really want to see this church grow, then as soon as a visitor gets here, you get them to volunteer for something. And I don't want them to volunteer for anything, much less teach a Sunday school class, because they don't know anything. And they want them, I want them to sit in the pew for at least two years, so I make sure they're going to understand basic doctrine first. I don't want them confusing the kids. So Jesus is pointing out their fallacy here, that they're operating on human viewpoint, and on they, all they want is the superficial and the physical. They don't want the spiritual. They just have a short-term perspective and a short-term solution. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes. Don't work for the temporal solution. Don't work for the political solution. Don't get out there on crusader arrogance and go through demonstrations and sit-ins and everything else in order to try try to achieve your political goal. The political solution, the temporal solution, is no solution. What you need to work for, the priority is... The food which endures to eternal life. The spiritual, the, the political solution without the spiritual solution is a tragic solution. There is nothing more tyrannical in life as is displayed in history than when the religious crowd gains political control. It has always happened. This is usually indicative of some kind of a post-millennialist scheme, but Christians are always trying to establish some Christian state in history. It happened in Geneva under Calvin and his successor Biza. It happened in Holland in the Dutch Reformed Church, and for a few years everything seems great and then it goes to seed. And it happened when those same Dutch Reformed believers came to Michigan at the turn of the century and tried to import that same system For a while it seemed to work, and then you end up with a system of tyranny as the Christians try to dominate everybody else and force their views and cram them down everybody else's throat. The issue in the church age is not to establish a kingdom, a political kingdom. That is not the function of the church. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone will establish a perfect political kingdom only when he returns at the second advent to establish the throne of David in Jerusalem and to establish the millennial kingdom. And that's the significance of the term Son of Man. Jesus says, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. The Son of Man was a term from Daniel uh, chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, all the human kingdoms are represented in succession. They're represented by various beasts, which signifies the bestial animal characteristics of mankind, fallen mankind, and how they dominate others. But the final kingdom, the messianic kingdom, is represented and ruled by the Son of Man in contrast to the beast. He is the perfect man, and he is the one who can, he is the only one who can uh, inaugurate a perfect kingdom and perfect environment. This is the fundamental problem with religious liberalism and political liberalism, is they believe that man is inherently good and man is inherently perfectible, and so is society. And so they are out trying to achieve a perfect society and utopianism through socialism. And socialism always destroys freedom. It takes away 
what you earn for, earn what you work for, everything you seek to achieve in life, and in order to make everything equal under the guise of this pseudo-equality, uh, remember the only equality in life is equality in the spiritual life. Men are not created equal. We're all different. Some are short, some are tall, some are fat, some are skinny, some are smart, some are dumb. Some people have uh, a lot of talent, some people have few talents, some people have no talent. But everybody has volition. And what you are in life is determined by how you utilize your volition. That's how God designed it. The, that's where what freedom is. And to have true freedom, you have to have freedom to fail so that you can have freedom to succeed. If you take away the freedom to fail, you will destroy the freedom to succeed because you're trying to equalize everything. And when the government comes along to set up some pseudo-system of equality, it always destroys freedom and ends up in a tyranny. That's why socialism is always destructive and it never works and it's predicated upon arrogance and will absolutely destroy this nation. When Jesus says, the Son of Man, only the Son of Man in the Millennial Kingdom, only then will there be perfect environment and it is product of grace. That's indicated by the verb didomi, which the Son of Man shall give to you. In other words, the solution is a grace solution. It's not a worked for solution. That's why Jesus says, don't work for the food which perishes. See, they want to work for it. They're caught up in legalism. They're caught up in religiosity, thinking that man by man's effort is going to bring in perfect environment. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way at all. It's a grace solution. And you have to get off of your agenda and get onto God's agenda. So he makes the point, stop laboring, stop working for the temporal solution, and start putting your focus on the spiritual solution. If you want happiness, if you want stability, if you want freedom, then it starts by accepting what God gives you first at the cross and then in terms of the spiritual life. But as soon as he starts emphasizing grace, just goes right past them. They miss the point, and notice how they respond. His command in verse 27 is, do not work. Their response is, what shall we do that we may work? Spiritually dead people are spiritually blind and they cannot understand the truth of God. And so you see the contrast between Jesus' command not to work but to, free, to accept freely that which is given freely and that is the gift of salvation. Jesus Christ did it all. He did the work. We don't do any work. So they respond in verse 28, and they say, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now remember, they were just fed the day before. It was a free meal. Some people say there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, they had the only free lunch in history. It was a grace gift, and they don't understand it. They just reject it. They want to do something to earn it. They want to somehow impress God that they were worthy of it. And they don't understand free, so they want to work. So they respond, what shall we do that we may work the works? Notice that's plural, the works of God. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. Singular. It's not a series of activities. It's not a plurality. There is only one thing that you do. And it's important to see how Jesus equates work here. Sometimes when you go to some other passages in John, it's important to understand the clarity here that when Jesus says work, the work of God, the work of God is clearly defined here. What kind of works do you have to do in order to get into heaven? It's very clear right here. This is the work of God. 
that you believe in Him whom He has sent. In other words, it is faith alone in Christ alone. This is the only work that impresses God. This is the only thing that you can do that ever impresses God. And it's not because you've done it, because faith is a non-meritorious system of thinking. It has no merit. All of the merit is in the object. Jesus Christ is the one who has all the merit because Jesus Christ is absolute perfect righteousness. He is plus R, and at the moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not because, and we studied that, it's not because, that would be dia plus the accusative in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is not because of faith, it is a dia plus the genitive, it is through faith. You are saved because of Christ's death on the cross. You are saved because of the grace of God. You are saved through faith, not because of faith. And when you express faith alone in Christ alone, then God the Father in His grace saves you. He saves you by imputing to you, even though you are minus R, He imputes to you the perfect righteousness of God, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then He looks at that and He says, Because you have perfect righteousness, I declare you just. That is what justification by faith alone means. And so Jesus says, This is the work of God, the only thing, singular. This is the only thing God requires, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Now they respond in verse 30. They said therefore to Him, What then do you do for a sign? Can you believe this? Now just the day before, all 12,000 are sitting out on that mountaintop starving to death, and He miraculously feeds them to abundance. They're so full, they're, they're looking for Rolaids and Tums and Pepsi. They don't know what to do, and then they realize something miraculous has happened during the night because he's made his way across the Sea of Galilee, and, and uh, Star Trek wasn't there to beam him over the lake, so something incredible has happened. And they sit there and say, okay, we want a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. The point is, facts aren't the issue. They have more than enough data to show that Jesus is the Messiah. The issue is not facts. If the issue was facts, then the problem... ...the intellect. The problem would be empirical. But the problem isn't empirical. The problem, problem isn't a problem with man's IQ. The problem is spiritual. He's totally depraved. And he has a problem with his volition. And he has chosen to reject God at God consciousness. You see, everybody in this crowd has become God conscious at one point in their life. And they are negative to it. They want God to function on their terms. They don't want to function on God's terms. So they say... What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? If you just gave us the right kind of sign, and we're going to tell you what that is. Now, that's arrogance. God, you can do everything you want to do to prove you exist, but you've got to do what we tell you to do in order for us to accept the fact that you exist. See, that's the height of arrogance. And no matter what you say, it will be reinterpreted within the framework of their negative volition. That is why... It's, it's wrong to think that if you could just prove that the tomb was empty, if you could just prove 
show people. Some people would say, well, if I saw Jesus, if I saw him perform those miracles, I'd believe him. No, you wouldn't. There were thousands of people who saw the miracles performed and rejected him. There were thousands of people who knew that he was raised from the dead and they didn't believe it. Because the issue isn't IQ. The issue isn't data. The issue isn't facts. The issue is your positive volition to God. Do you want to know God and accept His solution or do you want to do it yourself? So they say, what sign do you give and what work do you perform? Now, they're really setting themselves up in a trap here. They are going to just set this up and then they're going to walk right into it and the Lord is going to just devastate them. Now, remember, we have already seen the miracles that He has performed. And now, they want to have Him duplicate an Old Testament miracle. He's partially done it already. He did it once. And they go back to Moses feeding the children of Israel with manna for 40 years. Now, look at this. Verse 31, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They ate the what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? Except they didn't say it. What is it? They said it like your teenager says, What's that? <laughs> and so for the next uh, 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness, they, were, they had to eat the what's that? Because they were re- basically rejecting the grace of God. God provided them everything they needed for nutritional value and they turned their nose up at it. In fact, they wanted to go back to slavery because they wanted security rather than freedom. They wanted the leeks and the garlics of Egypt rather than the manna, the bread of heaven uh, that God provided. Now, when they quote this, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He. Now, because of punctuation style requirements in the English, you have a comma and then the beginning of a quote. The first word in that quote would be capitalized. But that is not capitalized because for them because they're referring to God. They're not referring to God. They're quoting a psalm, and the psalm refers to God, but they're not referring to God. We know that because of how Jesus corrects them. They're, the he there is, in their thinking is Moses. What they're saying is Moses gave them bread out of heaven to eat. See, they're putting their focus on the physical, political leader and not on the ultimate spiritual reality of God. We know this because there was a non-canonical book, 2 Baruch, which was read at that time. And in 2 Baruch 29.8 we read, It shall come to pass that a treasury of manna will be sent from on high and they will eat of it again in those years. This was a messianic prophecy. Remember, this is not an inspired book. It's not canonical. But in this book, there was, this was popular teaching in Judaism that when the Messiah came, then he would send manna from heaven again, just as Moses did. So, it shall come to pass that as a treasury of manna will be sent from on high, and they will eat of it again in those years. Of the former Redeemer Moses, uh, the former Redeemer Moses caused manna to descend, so will another Redeemer cause manna to descend. So, they want a duplicate miracle. Now, they've just seen the feeding of the 5,000, so they're spiritually blind, and they don't understand the dynamics that are going on here. And they want to make their case. They really want to prove that, Jesus, you've done okay, but you really haven't met the standard. Now, the standard is a religious standard. The standard doesn't come from the Scripture. The standard that they're quoting in 2 Baruch comes from non-canonical literature. And as we saw in our study of the development of the canon, they knew it wasn't the canonical. The Jews never accepted it as 
canonical, and the Jews at this time did not accept it as canonical. But this was a tradition that they had accepted in Judaism. And so they want to further substantiate, and they're really going to drive home their case and say, okay, we're going to buttress our argument here with Scripture. We're going to nail this guy and show that he really doesn't have what it takes. Verse 31 Verse uh, at the end, he, they quote, uh, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That's from the idea from Second Baruch. And then they quote the Scriptures. As it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 78. And what they want to do is they're going to quote this to say, See, this is what the Bible says, and you're just not good enough. And Jesus is just going to Say, okay, you want to play the exegetical game. Let's go back and see what Psalm 78 really talks about. So turn with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 begins in the superscript. It's a mascal of Asaph. That's not an editorial comment. That is the Word of God. In, in Hebrew, that little statement that you have as a superscript at the beginning is the first verse usually in the Hebrew. That's why the numbers are always different between the Hebrew Bible and the English Bible. It begins, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us, inculcation of Bible doctrine, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and His strength and His wondrous works, that is, His miracles that He has done. So the purpose of the psalm is to show the wonderful works that God performed in the Old Testament and rehearse God's miracles. Verse 7. We're just going to kind of skip through the psalm to hit the high points. That they should put their confidence in God. So the purpose for this is to strengthen the confidence of the believers in God. And not forget the works of God, but to keep His commandments. See, the miracles are not an end in themselves. They are simply to reinforce the message of God so that we are obedient to God. And not be like their fathers. Okay, here's the, the generation of the Exodus. Not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, that is its mind, the mentality of the soul, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And then verse 9. This is, this is where Jesus is really nailing them. The sons of Ephraim. Now, he doesn't say the sons of Israel. He doesn't say the sons of Judah. He says the sons of Ephraim. Why does he say the sons of Ephraim? Ephraim was one of Joseph's two sons. There was Manasseh and Ephraim that took Joseph's place. There's no tribe of Joseph. It's split up among his two, his two sons. Where did the tribe of Ephraim settle in the Old Testament? Settled around the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is going to Psalm 78, and he's saying, okay, the sons of Ephraim, let's drive this point home. Your ancestors here exemplify your negative volition today. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law. So the theme of Psalm 78 that they're quoting in order to try to nail Jesus is the theme of their own rebelliousness and rejection of the provision of God. They re- it, it shows that the Galileans have rejected God, rejected salvation, rejected grace. They've rejected the divine solution in favor of a temporal human solution. Now, verses 11 through 17 list God's works again. The, the, this whole psalm goes back and forth. There's a list of God's works and miracles, and then there is 
a reflection upon man's response to those miracles. Now, if you look at, let's see, I've been reading out of my notes instead of turning to the passage, but I want to make a couple of other points that I didn't include. That's the trouble with getting in late and everything. Psalm 38, verse 8, 78, verse 8, And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Okay. Now, we look down verse 11. And they forgot His deeds. This is what the Galileans are doing. They have forgotten His deeds. That was 24 hours before, folks. And they have forgotten His deeds and His miracles that He had showed them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand up like a heap. So it rehearses all of the exodus and how they forgot the next day. God, how are you going to feed us? Who can take care of us? And they complain about God. Now, verse 17, Yet they still continued to sin against Him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. This is their negative volition to God's miracles. And in their heart they put God to the test. How? By asking food according to their desire. Now, what are their descendants doing in Jesus' time? They are asking food according to their desire. They spoke against God and said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? So they're quoting this psalm to try to prove that Jesus doesn't fit the model and He's just going to turn it right back on top of them. And then verse, skip down to verse 20 there. Behold, He struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can He give us bread also? Will He provide meat for His people? Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel. Now here He uses, uses the term Jacob and Israel instead of Ephraim important how the Holy Spirit inspires these things. And then the Lord goes back and just uses it. And people doubt the inspiration of Scripture. But it's the nuances and how the Holy Spirit has, has just a change of word here or there. It applies later on. And it's just phenomenal. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation, yet He commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Now, there's our quote from John, John 6.31. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, who is the he in verse 24 of Psalm 78? It's God. But when the, when the uh, Galileans use it in John 6, they're referring to Moses. And we know that because, now you can turn back with me to John chapter 6. Is because when Jesus answered them in verse 32, he says, it says, Jesus therefore said to them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, point of doctrine, wake up and pay attention. I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. It was God the Father who supplied the bread. And then he goes on to say, For the bread of God, which comes down out of heaven, gives life to the world. It's not a physical bread. It is a spiritual bread. And now they say, look at their response. They still don't understand. They're like the woman at the well and the disciples are focused on the physical plane and not the spiritual plane. And they say, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Perhaps they're becoming positive. They've heard Jesus talk about how the Father provided for them and now... They've been duly chastised, so they're going, to, uh, they're going to respond favorably. 
But that's not what's going on here. When they say, Lord, evermore give us this bread, give is in the aorist tense. It's like a snapshot picture. Give us this bread. In other words, don't continually give us this bread. When God gave the bread to the children of Israel, He gave it to them every morning, day after day. Just gave them enough for the day because God wants us to trust Him day by day by day. He doesn't just give it all to us at once because then we're going to relax, we're going to stop trusting Him, we're going to abuse it and misuse it and squander it. So just a little bit here and a little bit there. But they say, give it to us. The aorist tense, if it was present tense, it was continually give us this bread. The aorist tense indicates, give it to us right now, all of it, and we'll figure out how to use it. They have not changed their attitude one little bit. They just say, okay, you're going to talk about this bread. Well, you give it to us, but we're going to use you for our agenda still. They're still, like most people, wanting to use God to accomplish their will in their lives and not to submit their will to God's will. And look at Jesus' answer, verse 35. Remarkable statement. He makes the phenomenal claim here. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So he is claiming to provide absolute and total nourishment Salvation for everybody. Not a little bit, not partially. And there's a very interesting phrase in the Greek here. In English, this would be bad English. If you say, never, I will never, or he will never thirst, then that means never at any time would they thirst. If you add the negative in front of it, not never, then it changes the meaning. Two negatives make it a positive. But in Greek, you can intensify your negatives by piling them up. And Jesus uses the two negatives, ou and me, together. And the best translation is, you will never, ever thirst. If you come to me, if you come to me, you will, and, and coming is in parallelism with believing. That's important to understand what comes up later. What he means by coming is trusting him. What he means by coming is trusting him. And notice, when he says, he who comes to me, just a side point here. Who is doing the inviting in this phrase? Jesus. He who comes to me. This is not the stupid, supercilious, silly, evangelical, invite Jesus into your heart. You do not invite Jesus anywhere. Jesus is the one who says, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. It is Jesus that invites us to Him. We do not invite Jesus into the cesspool of our totally depraved soul. Besides, inviting Jesus anywhere is not a synonym in Scripture for believing in Jesus. The Scripture nowhere says, Invite Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. The Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So we have to make sure that we understand what the Scripture conditions for salvation are and not confuse them with our silliness. Jesus said, He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never ever thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. In other words, you've got more than enough facts, folks, and you don't believe because the issue is not facts. The issue is not empiricism. The issue is faith and you have already been negative to God the Father. Verse 37. These are great verses for eternal security. All that the Father gives to me 
shall come to me. God in his omniscience in eternity past knows all the knowable. In his foreknowledge, he knew that there was only going to be one course of action. And that when he created Adam and Eve and gave them volition and gave them free will, he knew exactly what would happen and only one course of action would transpire as a result of that. And no matter how the situation was changed, it would always come out the same. And that does not mean there is necessity. It just means that no matter what happens, it's always going to be the same. The man would would fail and disobey God. And under that scenario, he knew exactly what would transpire. He provided a solution. That solution was Jesus Christ. He knew who would be positive no matter what. He knew who would be negative. And he provided that which was necessary so that those who were positive would respond. And then God is the one who causes them to be saved. Not overriding their volition, but he causes us to be saved because once we express faith alone in Christ alone, it is God who saved us. It is not by an act of the will, John 1, 12 and 13. It is by his act that he regenerates us. We do not regenerate ourselves. We simply accept the gift and then God regenerates us. Remember, the universe is a closed system in the sense that all causality, cause and effect, takes place within that closed system. We could diagram it this way. This is the universe, and the whole law of cause and effect operates within that system. Outside the system, as the Creator, is God. God exercises causality on everything within the system, but this is a different kind of causality than the causality within the system. This is category one causality. This is category two causality. And people get confused because they try to merge the two. But everything is caused by God. Jesus Christ controls history. That means even the thoughts we think have existence because God chooses to permit them to exist. So God causes everything. That does not make Him the moral or responsible agent. But that anything exists, it exists because of the permission of God and because God allows it to exist. So God then, it can be said of Scripture, that everyone that the Father gives of me, God in His omniscience knows who would be positive, and those are the ones that God gives to Jesus Christ. And the one who comes to me, that is their volition. That's their decision, exercising positive volition. At the moment of gospel hearing, they respond by faith alone in Christ alone. He who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. Jesus Christ is totally submissive to the plan of God the Father. Phase one, salvation, to accomplish that on the cross and to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And He is not going to act independently of the Father's plan. For I have not come down from heaven, not to, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. This is God's plan. This is God's will that of all that He has given me, everyone, without exception, I lose nothing. No loss of salvation. This is the doctrine of eternal security. If you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you come to Him. This is the point in verse 38. If you come to Him, you will not be cast out. If you come to Him, He will not lose you. If you come to Him, He will raise you up on the last day. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, that is, looks on Him, hears the Gospel, sees it clearly, and believes in Him, may have eternal life. This is in the subjunctive mood because it determines it is determined by your volition. It is potential because it is based upon the volition of the individual. Everyone who 
beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up. Certainty, indicative mood. God the Son will raise Him up on the last day. So Jesus makes the gospel very clear to the crowd, and they are going to reject it. He makes sure that they understand that the solution is not a political solution. It's not a temporal solution. It's not a physical solution. The solution is a spiritual solution, and it starts with regeneration. And until you have people saved, and you have people advancing in spiritual maturity, and people learning doctrine to develop a capacity for freedom, and develop a capacity for life and for happiness, you're just whitewashing the devil's world. J. Vernon McGee used to call it polishing brass on the sinking ship. And that's what Christians are involved in crusader arrogance of demonstrating and getting involved in all kinds of political activism and Christian activism are doing. They are trying to achieve a political solution like the crowd here, and they have forgotten that the solution is spiritual, and no matter what transpires in the political realm, if it is not preceded by the spiritual solution, it is going to fall apart. The cross must precede the crown. And that is why the kingdom offer was taken away from Israel at this time, because they did not accept the regeneration solution. So because they rejected the regeneration solution, the kingdom was taken away and postponed until the second coming. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study these things today and to see such a clear presentation of the gospel and eternal security and that the real issues in life are ultimately determined by the spiritual response to you. It, even in the midst of slavery, even in the midst of incredible political upheaval, Jesus is saying that if you would just turn to him and accept the solution of salvation and grow spiritually, then he would take care of the political problems and produce prosperity and freedom. So too often today we substitute the temporal for the eternal. We substitute the physical for the spiritual. And we put our emphasis on the day-to-day events rather than on the eternal God who is in charge of all the events. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, make them clear to us. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without eternal life, that they would understand with clarity the gospel, that Jesus Christ paid the price in total. It's a free gift. It is a well springing to eternal life at no cost, and that we do nothing to earn it or deserve it. We simply accept it by faith alone in Christ alone. All that is necessary is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to tell God the Father, I accept the free gift of Jesus Christ's death on the cross as my substitute. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to think on these things and be reminded of them throughout the week, that they may be used by the Holy Spirit in advancing us to spiritual maturity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For our final hymn.